The Law Report with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's Law Report program. And I'm joined this evening by Labour Law Attorney Michael Begram. Michael, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you for having me on the show this evening. We've got lots of interesting things to talk about. And as you said earlier, we're going to discuss employees who apply for jobs. And we're going to discuss the results of those applications, how you should behave, what you should ask for, what rights does an applicant have, what rights does an employer have, and how can it go sour. So let's discuss all that this evening. Well, we'll be doing that, and unfortunately we won't be taking any calls. Michael and I have taken Easter Monday off, and so we're not in the studio this evening, so we're going to be talking to you about all those interesting things he mentioned earlier. But before we get to that, Michael, we do have two email. One is an email, and actually one is a Facebook post that we can just pop in at the beginning before we get started. Right, and the first, it's from Jabalani. He says, in December 2013, I took my case of unfair dismissal to the Labour Court for review, but the Education Labour Relations Council could not produce mechanical records as required. They said the records were missing. The matter was set for reconstruction on the 4th of September 2014, which never took place, as they said they have no records of the case. Around November 2014, the state attorney representing the employer said in writing that he will apply to the Labour Court to set aside the award issued by the Commissioner and order a de novo hearing. What I want to know is, is it possible for the employer to apply to set aside the award and how long does it take to do so? What is a de novo hearing and if I am reinstated after that process, will I be compensated accordingly? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And the first thing is to explain what a de novo hearing is. It's the Latin phrase de novo, to start again, uh, to do it completely new. You see, what happens is when a commissioner makes an award, that award has to be backed up by the evidence that was heard in the CCMA or in the bargaining council, in this particular case, the bargaining council beforehand, and a court can have a look at it, a labor court in particular, can have a look at it on a review application in order to test whether the evidence fits in with the ruling as given by that commissioner, that arbitrator. And if they can't find the evidence that was given, then an employer can apply, like they've done in this case, to have the whole thing declared unreliable, and to send it back again to a different commissioner, not the same one, to a different one, and this time to rehear the evidence de novo from afresh, new. And it's unfortunate for the employee concern because that employee then has to go and give that evidence again, has to go and bring the witnesses again, bring the paperwork again. It's completely new. It's as if the other one didn't exist at all. So this employee is warned to ensure that everything that was said at the first one must be said again. And if there's anything new, say that as well, or if there are any other witnesses that he, he or she thinks they could have brought, then bring it again to the, to the CCMA or the Bargaining Council. And of course, what's unfortunate for the employee in this particular case is the employer now knows what is going to be said. Um, so there's the element of surprise is gone. That being said, he won it in the first place. So he should win it again. And then he said, well, what happens if he wins again? And he gets reinstated. Then he gets reinstated right back to the beginning. So it can go back for months and months, even years, and get all that back pay can be given to him. So there could be a, a silver lining to this cloud. And that silver lining might be a lot of money, all that back pay for not having worked. So there can be some benefit. And of course, his case sounds like it's a good one because he's already won once. Why shouldn't he win again? So I don't think it's all bad news. And He also wants to know how long it takes. Unfortunately, by any, any uh, guesstimate, it would be at least a year. Wow. Okay. So it could still be quite a while. The next question was actually posted on Facebook and it's from Andres and he says, I've got a problem regarding my former employer. I was dismissed for introducing a union at the company, but my charges changed to be defaming the company, racial comments on my Facebook account and threatening my colleague, which is untrue. And I believe I was unfairly dismissed. The matter went to the CCMA arbitration and I'm still waiting for the Labour Court to respond to my case. And it's too long, he says. 
Okay. He originally was was one thing was that he was dismissed for introducing a union, and then they changed it to oh no, actually you were defaming the company, and there were racial comments on his Facebook account, and apparently threatened the colleague. So maybe they realised they shouldn't have been dismissing him for introducing a union, and so they changed the charges. Yeah. Can they do that? Well, you can't change a charge. I mean, if they have, and I'm, that's a very it's a convoluted question, unfortunately, because he first says I'm being dismissed for um, introducing a union. And then he said they changed the charge. In other words, it must have been before he was dismissed they changed the charges because they couldn't have had him dismissed and then had a different charge. You can't do that. You can't have a disciplinary hearing after a person's left and been dismissed. Or maybe because he, he says the matter went to the CCMA arbitration. Maybe when they got there, the employer said, no, well, actually, it wasn't for that. It was for something else. Well, then they're going to lose because if you think about this and it's, it's difficult to fire someone for X and then defend your dismissal for why um, that doesn't make sense so they're going to lose that one so that shouldn't be a problem but I think he's also made a little bit of a mistake in the question and it's also thrown me out because he's saying he's he went to the CCMA and he's now waiting for the Labour Court mm. so I'm not sure where the Labour Court comes he says in I went to the CCMA comma arbitration so I don't know whether maybe well, then the Labour Court doesn't come into this so mm. I'm not sure why he's waiting for the Labour Court unless he did win or lost and someone's taken a review to the Labour Court. So it is a convoluted question, unfortunately. The, the bottom line is Facebook is something that we want to discuss just now. And it's, it's something that we need to, at the bottom line, say there's a problem. Um, because as a job applicant, people look at your Facebook page. And That's then they quite say, scary, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, you've got to be very careful what you say on Facebook. And what you do say on Facebook can actually lead to a dismissal. And I've just done a very interesting case on that where a lady, an HR uh, practitioner in the company, very senior lady in the company, posted on her Facebook some derogatory comments about her employers and was sent to a group of her friends, supposedly not to the general public, but just to a group, a close group of friends. One of them happened to send that on, liked it, and sent it on to her friends, it then went viral. She's now deemed to be the person that made the comment, and she. everyone's got to know that the minute you use electronic media, social media, it is open. And if you're going to make nasty comments about your boss, about someone at work, or about something that they do, then you can be rest assured it's going to come back and bite you. And so it's something we need to discuss, <sighs> and it's something that I'm hoping to discuss with regard to job applicants, because, for instance, I often tell my son, it's all very well to make comments on Facebook about certain things and about certain people, hoping that it'll be uh, confidential, but that's never confidential because you send it to your five best friends. They intend to send it to their five best friends each, and then, as you know, it becomes absolutely viral and the whole world knows about it. And then one day you want to apply for a job. And when you apply for your job, what does a boss go and do? He goes onto your Facebook profile and has a look to say what people have said about you, what you've said about all your likes, your dislikes, your habits. Um, and it doesn't help to boast that you got terribly drunk last weekend <laughs> and landed up in the gutter. It doesn't help because one day when you want to join... A bank and you want to go and work in that bank they're going to look at this and say well we don't really want to drunk it over here and you might have done that in your uh, wayward youth at 18 and let your hair down and now you're 29 and you want to have a job that's a problem you did mention i think once quite a long time ago a case of somebody who was bragging about what they were doing they had a terrible hangover that hadn't gone into the office or something all on facebook Correct. and they, they somebody at work spotted it and he was supposed to be off ill and meantime he was at home with a hangover and doing whatever Correct. he was doing so and also made derogatory comments mm. on that particularly a very interesting case because one of the friends was a person at work. That person at work then sent it to everyone else at work and said, look at Johnny. He's at home with a hangover and uh, making up songs about his boss. He was uh, he wrote a little ditty. Uh, and and not, not rude, but an unpleasant ditty about his boss. It got placed on the boss's Facebook page saying, voila, look what happened to you. Uh, there was a disciplinary hearing a week later and he got fired. 
And of course, it was easily defensible. And that's the problem that you've got in cases of this nature, because it's all very well for someone to say, it wasn't on my Facebook page, but they'll produce it. You can take a snapshot and produce it in the court. So just be very careful. Correct. Very it doesn't careful. help to wipe it out afterwards. Right. So now that, that's all the scary part about being employed. We're mm. going to talk about actually applying for the job. Yes. What do we need to know about applying for well, a job? Let me, let me first tell you what an employer needs to know. This okay. is the, I think that's the first step because it then will teach you what an employee needs to know as well. There's a lot of law um, surrounding applications for jobs, surrounding the rights of an applicant for a job and surrounding the rights and duties of the applicant and the rights and duties of the employer, of the future employer. Um, and I'm going to, obviously, at the end of this, come out with a recommendation that if, in fact, it is a position, a senior position in a company, that do have some spare cash to do it properly, rather use an agency, because there's so many pitfalls involved in this. Well, the first thing we need to know is that in South Africa today we have laws against discrimination. You can't discriminate against people and there's a whole shopping list for race, sex, creed, color, you name it. You can't discriminate against people. We've come from a very disparate past. It's a disjointed past. Apartheid was a terrible evil. And so we've what we've done is we've legislated now in South Africa that any discrimination against anyone is bad. That translates into the applicant for a job. Now, when you are an applicant for a job, you have certain rights. And those rights are defined in the Labor Relations Act. Now, it doesn't sound right. I mean, often people come to me, employers come to me, and say, as our attorney, can you explain to us why this person who's not an employee yet gains rights in terms of the Labor Relations Act, which is employer versus employee? because they're not an employee yet. And that's the, one of the lacuna that we see in our understanding of the labor relations. There's a gap in our understanding because immediately you apply for a job, you gain rights just by the fact that you apply. You might even be applying for a position that doesn't exist. But the minute you apply, you gain certain rights. So if you apply for a position, let's just take this example. You write in and say, I'd like to be a plumber in your company. They then write back saying, thank you for the application, but we don't take black people. That's racist and discriminatory. Even if there isn't a position for a plumber, what you've done is racist and discriminatory and is wrong in law. And then that person's got a claim for damages against you. They can either go to the equality court and say, this is what you've done and claim damages for it, or they can go to the labor court and claim damages there. And the real problem that you've got is that once you become that applicant, you then step into an arena which is a rarefied arena. So let's say, take that application for a plumber, let's say that I, Michael, run a small plumbing company and I need a plumber. I then put an advert in the Sunday Times and I say, I need a plumber, I'm prepared to pay 5,000 rand a month. Now, there are lots of plumbers, I'm in Cape Town, and there are lots of plumbers around the country reading the Sunday Times. And 20 apply. Remember, I need one. So 20 apply, one's in Pofada, the one's in Port Elizabeth, the one's in Polakwani, etc. And they all apply, and then I regret some of them. I say, sorry, I can't help you, I don't want you. And I write back to two of them making nasty remarks. No, we don't want a plumber that can't spell. Your application was full of spelling errors. The other one is, no, we don't want a plumber that was brought up in Pofada. We don't like that. Those are two terrible reasons to tell plumbers to go away. That plumber in Pofada and the other one in Polakwani then applies to the CCMA wherever they are. Not in Cape Town. They, it's the applicant that determines the jurisdiction of the CCMA. They then launch a case there in that town. This small plumber in Cape Town then has to go and defend that case in Port Elizabeth or in Polokwane. So it, it, it's a minefield. You can imagine. Now I've had this. I've had this example where people have placed adverts, and you can imagine electronic media 
when you're placing an advert for a job, you can imagine what, what is going on. There was a wonderful case, and I, I think I once told you the story of a, a fellow in Durban that was um, put an advert in his window of his shop, and he wanted um, good, he, I said he called it young, good-looking women. Mm, I remember that, um, yes. To come and apply. And when people have then did apply, he said, no, he said, you're too old or you're too fat or you're ugly. And he was dissing a whole lot of people. He was saying, sorry, I, I can't help you. And then he had a complete furor in Durban about this. And he got himself into mega trouble. I, I must admit that I was at a conference, a law conference in Durban at the time. Um, and, and I loved it. I mean, you know, I, I was imagining all these people applying and he's busy telling each one, you too ugly, you haven't got a nice face, you too fat, you know, the whole bit. Um, so you can imagine what sprung out of that. He did get into trouble. He pulled down his advert very quickly off his window in the shop and he got into trouble. I also remember telling you a little story about um, uh, at that same conference. I think we got into a lot of trouble in that conference. We were having fun because there was a whole lot of labor lawyers together. Uh, at that same conference, and it was many years ago when this law first came into being, there was an advert for a go-go dancer in a club in Durban, one of the main roads in the club. And that advert was badly worded. So I, as a male, phoned in and asked if I could be the go-go dancer. Um, and I had it on loudspeaker in the pub with all the labor lawyers sitting around. And I asked if I could be the go-go dancer. And I said, I've got a couple of problems when I'm male. Two, I'm overweight. Three, I'm ugly. And four, I can't dance. <laughs> and the bottom line was um, the woman who answered actually kept putting the phone down and I said, you know, she's discriminating against me. I phoned back a few times. Eventually I did phone and tell her, look, you know, I'm, I've got all my labor lawyers listening in on the phone call and I've got lots of claims against you because she said, no, she can't have me first because I'm male and then because I, I couldn't dance and she wouldn't teach me. And then she said, no, and I said, look, I'm not good looking. Um, I'm quite ugly. She said, no, well, we don't want you anyway. <laughs> um, the, the bottom line is, as an applicant for a job, mm. you have rights, and you've got to be careful how you diss someone. So that's a whole minefield in itself in just that first part of the application. Of course, there's lots of other minefields that one walks into when one is applying for a job. Well, the next one is when an applicant comes for a job, you're supposed to, because you're now testing people, as to what you need. So you're supposed to have a very careful outline of the job description. And I know most employers don't have a proper job description, but they should have a proper job description because if you take the person and they can't do the job, at least you could say that we, when we went through the interviewing stage, we asked you if you were able to do the job and you then certified that you could and that there was nothing standing in your way saying you can't. Now, can you just imagine you want to take in a nursery school teacher and you've asked them if they have any impediment to being able to be a nursery school teacher and they don't tell you that they've just been convicted for paedophilia. Now, you can understand that that would create havoc in the employer's mind after three months with this person being the nursery school teacher and then finding out this piece of information. Um, it would create absolute havoc. And so you need to start trying to find out. Now, there's a problem standing in your way there because we have poppy, which is the freedom of information, where you've got personal protection against certain information and people can't just go and check out and see all your confidential information. Um, so you want to be very careful the way you word these. That's why I said use agents uh, if you're going to employ one. But you've got to be very careful as the way you word it because obviously when you're looking to employ your accountant, your internal accountant, that internal accountant in turn should be honest because he's working with millions of rands every day. Now, if that internal accountant was fired from the previous job for stealing, I think it's quite important for you to know that because he's going to be working with cash. Let's say he's running the cash office for a big corporation. All the cash comes into one office and he's just been convicted of fraud. I think it's important to ask, do you have any previous convictions 
Which would entail a problem with you taking this job working with cash. But I mean, they could say, no, I don't. And then what do you do? Well, then you've lied and then you can dismiss at a later stage when it comes to the fall. After they've stolen all your money. Yes. Well, unfortunately. You know. But you are entitled to ask, especially when it comes to something like that. You can't go because it's confidential information and there is an enormous area of potential risk here. You can't just go and ask them all sorts of other irrelevant questions. You must ask questions that are relevant to the nature and exigency of that particular job. For instance, one does ask a future airline pilot whether he has epilepsy. Um, that's irrelevant to everyone else. Um, you don't ask if you're going to employ someone who's your accountant whether he has epilepsy. I mean, that, that would not be silly. It's irrelevant to the job. It's irrelevant to mm. the job. But it's very relevant if you're going to be flying a Boeing. It's the same, and unfortunately we've got lots of cases on this, with HIV. You wouldn't be able to test most people to see if they're HIV positive before they come and work for you, but the airlines can do that. Why would they be allowed to because do that? Because unfortunately with HIV it comes also with certain problems that you do. You do on certain stages of it, you pass out. And oh. you have problems with fainting or whatever. I'm not. I'm no doctor, but apparently that case said that they do, and so they're entitled to it. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So airline pilots, in fact, should be tested to see if they are positive or not. And also, I mean, it's, it's incumbent upon you to say that I, mm. I have epilepsy. I'm compliant with my drugs, and I'm. I don't have episodes. But as an airline pilot flying a Boeing, I think it's important for SAA, for instance, to know about it. And I think for the, for the, <laughs> the public also yes. need to know about it. And they wouldn't be very keen to hear that their pilot um, does pass out from time to time. Um, and it's a bit unfortunate and he has a fit or whatever it is. And that, that's not acceptable. So because of that, you need to, in the position that you're actually appointing someone... You need to know what, what you're appointing, why you're appointing the person. In other words, a proper job description, what is expected of them. And then over and above that, you, you need to then temper your questions to fit in with what is required. Along the same lines, though, I mean, if, if somebody, as you say, with HIV has the potential to possibly have fainting spells, I'd never knew that personally, myself. But what, what about things like truck drivers and those sorts of things? Correct. It's I mean, the same. They, you can't ask people all the time are you positive i mean you well you can you can ask them if in fact look let's say you're putting a man into a 50 ton truck and you're going to put on the 50 ton truck 50 tons and it's a massive pantechnicon and he's going to drive from cape town to johannesburg with fruit and he then tells you that he's absolutely fine it just so happens that he's a drug addict I think you need to ask, is there anything that you do or do you take socially, do you take drugs, do you take alcohol, um, do you ever take it during the week? I think that's important to ask a truck driver because I don't think public interest would stop you asking questions like that for a massive truck driver. But on the other hand, if I dig ditches as a laborer on a building site, and yes, I recreationally take some drugs on the weekend. I don't think that's going to be a major problem for that job. So you wouldn't be able to ask me that. I'm just worrying that if the employer goes around asking certain questions, they could actually find themselves in a bit of trouble. They could. And then you need to be able to justify why you're asking. Of course, you can't force people to answer mm. either. Um, people might say, I don't like the question. I'm not going to answer it. Of course, then employers sometimes then say, well, you know, I'm going to take that as a negative and not as a positive. And that's why what I'm saying is I implore future employers to actually ask the correct questions in accordance with the job description. So it is important. I mean, we've seen in South Africa, for instance, many, many times now in the last few months where people have lied on their CV. And I think if there's a CV, you need to test that CV. You need to ask people for, and, and unfortunately we don't do it much in this country, you need to ask people, if you've got a matric, let me see your matric certificate. Let me test it. Give me permission to ask, to find out. Matric certificates, for instance, are registered with the government. The Department of Education can go back and check it out. If I've said that I've got a matric, and in my matric i got maths and science, which are notoriously the most difficult subjects, 
well, for me anyway. Yeah, me too. <clears throat> and I then don't have a matric and I don't have maths and science. I, that's a lie and I can get dismissed for that. But I think before we even get there, an employer should be testing that. And an employee should understand that the CV is going to be tested. Your skills are going to be tested. It doesn't help to say that I have five years of experience turning widgets. It doesn't help that if, in fact, you've never turned a widget before. And there was an old joke about a man going to an orchestra and says, I want to apply for the position as a clarinet player. And they say, well, can you play the clarinet? And he says, well, I don't know. I've never tried before. <laughs> so <laughs> the point is that we as an employer need to know that the person can actually do it and then have some trustworthiness in the answers that you're getting to questions, but it doesn't help not to ask. Mm. It doesn't help afterwards to say, but I thought you could do, and then the employee will say, but you never asked. I would have been honest and told you, no, I can't, I can't play the clarinet. I just applied for a job as a clarinet. Mm. I mean, uh, I've got this dream. I'd like to be a clarinet player, but I'm, you know, I've never played one before. Well, you were trying for a go-go dance. Anything's well, possible, Michael. Anything's you know? possible. So <laughs> what I'm saying is it's, 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 it is a minefield for the employer. Now, the employee also needs to ask questions and also needs to find out. And, in fact, I think it's more serious for an employee to find out who they're going to work for. Uh, I had an interesting case uh, recently where an employee was going to work for a... Um, uh, a call center. This call center um, paid quite well and the qualifications were quite low so the employee thought okay this is perfect for him he needed a job there were jobs going and he applied and didn't ask anything about the company. He arrived there to find that their busiest day is a Saturday and that that's when they really need everyone on board and in fact they overburden their Saturdays because most of the calls come through on the Saturdays. This employee had converted to, um, I, I, I think it was a, um, it was a, a part of Christianity. Um, Jehovah's, Witness, Jehovah's or, Witness. or or, mm. or another part of, of the religion. But their Sabbath was on a Saturday. It's like a Jewish person would have their on Sabbath a on a Saturday. Yeah. And in fact, because he was a Jehovah's Witness, I think it was a Jehovah's Witness, he couldn't work on the Saturday. But he hadn't asked beforehand whether that would be fine and he could work in on the Sunday, for instance, because some people can't work on Sundays. Mm. Some people can't work on, on Fridays. If you're a Muslim and you want to go to mosque on a Friday lunchtime, you need to ask, can I get off Friday lunchtime because I'm a religious man and I go to mosque? But it doesn't help afterwards. After you've taken the job and you've started and then to then mention to them, by the way, I don't work on Saturdays, which is what happened in this particular case. It caused an absolute upheaval because he had resigned from his previous job, moved his family to the town where the job was, and now suddenly announced that he can't work on a Saturday. The employer was aghast because no one had ever asked him. And he said, but you know, I've got a website where you could have asked us. You came for two interviews. Why do you suddenly spring that on now? And he said, well, no one normally works on Saturdays. Well, of course, many people work on Saturdays. Many shops are open on Saturdays. We know that, in fact, if you're, if you're going to work in a retail environment and you're working in a shopping center, they've got to be open from 9 to 9 in some of these shops. Saturdays centers. and Sundays. Yeah, on seven days a week. And then they can use the roster uh, to fit you in whenever you rostered. It doesn't help to say, listen, I can't work on Sundays because I get the kids. I'm divorced and I only get the kids on Sundays, so I can never do Sunday. Now you've now upset all the other employees because they say, why don't you come in on a Sunday? Where did you get the special dispensation? So that's absolutely vital to ask as well. There are all sorts of issues that arise if you don't ask the questions when you're an applicant for the job. And you're certainly not going to win your labor law case. If the employer then says, now I'm going to have a disciplinary inquiry if you don't pitch up on Saturday. And you can't then scream discrimination and say you're discriminating against me because I'm a Jehovah's Witness, which is what happened in that particular case. And they lost the case because the employer said, but it's there. It's on all our information that we open on Saturday. It's our busiest day. So that employee got himself into trouble 
lost his first job because he had resigned, lost his second job because he wouldn't work on the Saturday, and then lost his case, which cost him a lot of money as well. And so as an applicant for a job, it's absolutely vital that you get yourself involved in finding out as much as possible about the company that you can. Um, of course, in terms of common sense, when you go in for an interview, it does make common sense to actually read about the company that you're going to go to. Most companies today have an electronic profile. They have websites, they have press releases, they have um, information on the web about themselves. And I, I would suggest that a wise applicant is someone who's going to read a little bit about the company and then be able to at least come in and talk and ask intelligent companies, company questions beforehand because then you're probably going to get the job anyway. What we also know in terms of our law is that we've got negative discrimination and positive discrimination. Now we do know and we have had many questions on this program and you and I know about all these questions that come through but for people who don't always listen to us you do have positive discrimination where they say that we won't take white males because we're trying to fit in with our profile and we want to follow our employment equity plan. Now I know that creates all sorts of problems. It's social engineering. It's not great. No one, no one actually wants social engineering. No one. I don't believe even our government doesn't want it. But they're trying to somehow create the wrongs of the past and try and right them. And the way they're trying to right the wrongs of the past is to be trying to get a workforce which is more reflective of the population that we live in. Now, unfortunately, that has led to a lot of unhappiness, um, a lot of court cases, and quite frankly, it's, it's created a lot of people saying that I'd rather leave the country or I'll never find a job, makes people despondent and whatever. And unfortunately, it's on our statute book. It has to be followed, and as a law, as a lawyer, I'm telling you that it's it's going to be here for many years to come. There's no sunset clause. It doesn't. It doesn't appear to be anyone talking about a sunset clause. It's certainly not in the legislation, but it's not even being debated at the moment. So that's that's not that's not going to happen. What is being debated is whether, in fact, you can look at previously disadvantaged, which is the term that we say, whether in fact that includes women, colored people, disabled, and black people. Now those four categories should be equal. And they are equal in the eyes of the law, but unfortunately many companies, and certainly parastatals, and our government seems to be doing a bit of a nasty here, are saying, well, colored people aren't as important as black people. And we've seen a few cases like that as well, and I know that I get letters at my law firm um, for some reason or other that I, I must get five to ten letters like that a week where people say that I've been discriminated against, um, I've been told that I'm only colored, I'm not black, or I've been told, uh, no, women don't count, uh, we only want black women, we don't want white women. There's all sorts of problems that arise on this, and I think we're going to be litigating for many more years, and the courts are going to be trying to muddle their way through this mess because we've moved from a, an, an era of discrimination into an era of a different type of discrimination. And I, look, it's not healthy, and I don't think any of us are, are happy. I can't imagine anyone smiling about it. But I think what we need to do is understand that and understand that if, in fact, we do get told that you can't have the job, that you must look at it carefully and determine whether, in fact, you were told to go away for a positive or a negative discrimination. Now, what the law actually says is if there are two people equally qualified, one happens to be white and one happens to be black, and they're both male, and they're equally qualified, you would then take the black man because you're trying to um, redress the situation. Redress the situation. If, however, you can show that as a white man you are applying for the job and you actually can do the job and the black man can't do the job because he hasn't got the qualifications to do it, I think it would then be unfair to discriminate against that man. Now, I'm treading on very thin political mm. ice 
over here and I don't like talking about this too much but I think we're getting so many questions about it we do need to talk about it I've just gotten an email this morning from a client of mine whose daughter wasn't able to get a job because she happens to be white and she was told that we don't want a white woman and I think that is unfair because as part of the previously disadvantaged was women and it specifically says so in the in in the law but then of course people put together employment equity plans and they have to then meet those employment equity plans and if it says that we need to put 70% of our workforce as black and they're only at 30% you can imagine they're going to try and recruit more and more people to meet that employment equity plan not to get a fine because the fines are absolutely enormous so in reality this negative discrimination um, is seen often also in the sense of positive discrimination in other words although it's fair in law it's not fair in morals the sad thing about all of that though michael is that the disabled are still not getting the work i think i was doing an interview a few weeks ago on my disability report show and i think it was something like one percent of people with disabilities who are able to work are employed yeah i mean that, that is tragic. your workforce should be reflective three percent mm. i think that's the figures that we're going and I think that's a, that's another another issue. In fact, the disabled are being discriminated still to this day. And I think one of the problems is, and I've taken this up with the Department of Labor, is that we don't have enough inspectors. Mm. And because a lot of the businesses are saying, well, we don't want the disabled, they can't do the job. Meanwhile, people can. That's the point. You know, because, because you're in a wheelchair doesn't mean that you're stupid. Um, I had the unfortunate, I think I once told you this as well, an unfortunate experience where I landed up in a wheelchair for six months. I had broken my ankle very badly and, and they wouldn't let me put any pressure on it. And they were trying to build it up again. And I had people at the court, at the labor court, because I used to go in there in my wheelchair, uh, speaking very loudly <laughs> to me, uh, thinking that maybe I'm deaf because I'm in a wheelchair or talking very slowly. I experienced that as well. Well, they talk I'm, to the person with you because you yeah, can't, because yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't understand them. Understand hmm. them they'll talk to the person who's pushing my chair. <laughs> um, and I had all those experiences. It was quite an eye-opener for me. Uh, you know, And I think a lot of us don't realize um, how much of that discrimination actually is going on in this country. Mm. Um, and it's all the time. And unfortunately, even with employment equity and employment equity plans and the whole legislation that goes with it, black people are still discriminated against when they come to the interviews. Because for some reason, either some management don't believe that they can be equally as qualified, if not better, than any of the white applicants. And we still got that, it's that past that uh, we need to move another two or three generations before we get rid of that discrimination. The other thing I wanted to ask you as well is about pregnant women. I know the, back in the day, I remember many years ago, um, before my, when my son was still very little, the, his preschool wanted somebody to come and help out in the office. And I said, well, I'll, I wasn't working at the time, so I was looking after him. So I said, well, I'll come and help out. And they actually said to me, are you planning on having any more children? And I said, well, not really, no, just the one was fine. No, no well, they, they would prefer somebody that had all their children that, that I wouldn't suddenly wander off and go and have another baby. They, they said that to me. Now, I could actually take them to the CCR. Uh, absolutely, because that is discrimination mm. of note, and that would be an automatically unfair discriminatory action and you could get up to two years worth of salary oh wow wish gosh i should have done that now <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> this was a long time that, ago that's exactly it and and as an applicant again um it would be a very unfair and it's wrong and illegal to ask a person as to whether you're planning to have babies mm. in the future and it's, it's absolutely wrong because you're treating it as a dreaded disease yeah. the pregnancy and what and happens if you're just pregnant and you apply for a job i mean are you are you obliged to tell the employer no you're not you're not obliged i tell you there was one interesting case it was with woolworths many years back where uh, and they won the case where a woman was brought on board specifically uh, to buy women's shoes and to source the shoes if i remember correctly i don't remember the exact facts of the case but she didn't tell them that she was going to give birth at the time when the big order was when she was supposed to go and source the shoes and she knew what their time their time plan was she knew the planning of this case and exactly how they were going to send overseas they were going to do all sorts of things to get this range through 
She knew she was pregnant. She knew she wouldn't be able to go. And she kept quiet, got the job, and then they dismissed her. And she said they were discriminating against her because she was pregnant. But the bottom line was she had been dishonest uh, about it. And, in fact, they won the case. Is it not maybe safer just to say up front? Yes, it is. But sometimes people discriminate against you. Yeah, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, so it's not safer. But if you know that they specifically need you for a specific period, and that's why you're being brought on at such a high salary in such a hurry, and you know you're not going to be able to fulfill that, I think then it would be honest to tell them. Because in all honesty, I mean, the employer is going to think, well, she's only going to be here for like seven, eight months, and then she's going to be off for maternity leave, and I, you know, then I've got to get a yeah. temp in, and, you know, and then they're automatically going to think, well, maybe we'll just bypass this applicant. Correct. And, and they, by yeah. law, they actually can't now. They can't. The, the bottom line is that one needs to be thinking. You need to think as an applicant as to what you need to know about the company, what you need to ask. You also need to think as to what you need to tell them uh, because there might be certain things that if you don't tell them or if you're dishonest in your answers that they do ask, that'll come back and bite you at a later stage. And often people ask, is there anything, and they have the generic question, is there anything that you can tell us now that you know what the job's all about, now that you've heard us as to what we require, is there anything that you can tell us that would stand in your way in order to be able to perform your job. And if you say, no, there's nothing I can think of, but there is something there, although you might deem it to be uh, confidential or impractical to tell them, but there is something there that you do know that you won't be able to perform what they're expecting you to perform. If that's the case and you don't answer that and you say no and you're dishonest about it, when at a later stage they find that you can't perform because of X, then you've got a problem. In other words, if you tell them, yes, I have a work permit, no problem, I can take this job. But you know that your work permit is running out in three months' time and you know that there's a, going to be a real problem with you being able to renew it and you don't renew it and you just carry on working. And they've asked you, is there anything that you know that would stand in your way of being able to do this job. And in fact, we're going to train you for six months. And at the end of that six months, it's absolutely vital that you'll be able to travel, for instance, and be a buyer for our company. But you know full well that your work permit runs out in three months' time. I think it's very dishonest of you not to say so. And when they do find out and they do have a disciplinary inquiry, and the disciplinary inquiry will be the dishonesty, not the fact that you haven't got a work permit. And, and that's the real problem. The real problem is the lie as opposed to the event. Because if at least you're up front with people and say there could be a problem, but I'm going to try and get it renewed and please bear with me and help me with this, then they can't then come and say, well, it's run out, we're dismissing you. Because they would have known about it and they said, let us help you um, obtain the work permit. So again, as being an applicant, you have certain duties. You've got rights, as I explained just now, but there's certain duties that rest upon you and rest upon your shoulders to be able to tell the employer. The employer doesn't have full rights just to go and do a full investigation. They can't hire a private detective to follow you around to find out what's going on. Often, for instance, employees are told in the, in the interview and told in the advert for the job, you need your own transport. And it's very easy to come in and say, yes, I got my own transport because I am actually planning to buy a car in three months' time. And so I am planning to have my own transport. So it's only a white lie. And then somehow you don't get that car. And then you start with the stories. Or it's in the garage or um, it's just broken down or my uncle's in town and he needs to use it. I mean, I've been through all these cases at, at, in my law firm. And eventually it becomes absolutely clear that you haven't got your own transport, you never had your own transport, and you don't intend getting your own transport. If that's the case, then you've lied. It's not because you're not getting fired because you don't have your own transport. You're getting fired for the lie in the first place. So there's a whole lot of duties on you that fall on you in terms of the legislation, in terms of the interview, and in terms of fairness at the workplace that if you don't fulfill those duties, then not only are you going to land the job that you can't do, but you're going to get fired and then you destroy your own CV. And I often tell people that, that the CV is something that follows you around, because people are going to ask in the future, uh, between the months of 
January 2015 and June 2015, where, where were you? What did you do? And you can't say, well, I took a holiday and I was in Mauritius spearfishing. You're probably going to have to say, I did have a job, but I got fired from that job. And that's why I've left it off my CV. And then they're going to ask, why are you fired? And then you've put a real, you've blotted your copybook. It's a real negative on your CV. So it's absolutely vital. And then now we're living in the days and the times when job is an incredibly, incredibly positive thing to have. It's a major asset. It's probably one of our biggest assets. And we all know that that's the biggest problem facing government at the moment is job creation. So don't mess with a, with a jewel that you might have in your hands to be able to get that job. So the bottom line for an employee, though, is just to be upfront about everything, to be honest about everything. Yes. And, unless, to, and, and before you get there, look into the company, make, find out something mm. so that you, when you get there, you're walking into the office and thinking, well, I don't even know quite what this company does, but I'm here for the interview. Yeah. You know, yeah, try and find out job. some in, information so you've got some idea yeah. so that you can actually ask the questions you need yeah, to ask. Correct. You don't think I'm desperate for the job, so I'm just going to make up stories mm. and tell them. I'm very good at speaking, so I'll just tell them everything they want to hear. Um, but it doesn't help when you go and for, apply for a job to become a personal secretary and he says, well, can you type? And you say, of course, I can do 75 words a minute. Um, and then he says, well, let me see. And then you say, what's this? And he <laughs> says, uh, that's it. And if you press this button, it makes a mark on the screen and you say far out. You know, that... That doesn't help. No. It doesn't help. I, I remember actually being involved at, at one point uh, where there was a woman who applied for a job and um, through an agency, no less. And she, it was for a secretarial position and she got the job and she arrived and she apparently could type until she got put in front of a typewriter mm -hmm. and then picked with two fingers. And Correct. that she had to look for the keys. So it spent five minutes looking for the keys on the keyboard yeah. and then hit one, you know. It sounds very much like um, me. Actually. It was, it was, <laughs> no. Yeah, no, well, let, let me just up front say I mm. type 120 words a minute. So that was really freaking me out. Yeah, okay, know? well, that, that, that's the problem. Yeah, no, this is a comment here about, um, you know, if somebody starts tipexing out the, the, the mistakes on the screen of the computer, um, you know there's a problem. I, I, I do want to have a look at what employers do is they have the interviews and then they choose, let's say five people applied for the job. They have the interviews and then they choose one. The other four, as we said earlier, could challenge this. Now, the idea for an employer to do this properly and to have records of it is a very good idea. And normally what they should do is plan beforehand a list of questions that they're going to ask. And that list of questions should be commensurate with the list of questions they're going to ask the next person. It doesn't have to be word for word, but they must be able to show that you compared apples with apples, not apples and pears. It doesn't help to ask a set of questions and then next week get together the different group of people and ask another set of questions and then say A was better than B when they've been asked different things and there's been different panelists asking them. So the, the real issue is, is to try as an employer to organize yourself properly. If it's only you doing the interview, normally I ask people to try and, inter and interview the people with a set questionnaire that you've got. And then underneath have a blank where you can actually fill in the answer. So if anyone tests you afterwards, they're going to say, why did you choose Joe Soap in instead of Cheryl? And you're going to say, well, I've got both the questionnaires. They're both the same questionnaires. I've got the gaps where I filled in the answers for both of them. And I then looked at it objectively and I said, this one's going to be better because of these answers that I got and because of the abilities that they've outlined to me. And so you need to be able to prove the onus lies on you as an employer Afterwards, when it gets challenged, and it will get challenged, we're going to see more and more challenges coming through for people who are interviewing future staff. People are going to, and as it gets tighter, the job market gets tighter, more and more people are going to challenge this. And people are very, very sensitive about this nowadays because people are getting letters in the post saying, sorry, you know, you, your application is not acceptable or no good or whatever it might be. 
They then are going to run to a lawyer, they'll run to Michael Bagram. I will immediately write to the company and say, why did you not take my client? But now when it comes down to the, the answers to questions, what about sort of the personality of that em, in, employ, potential employee and the fit within the company? The Correct. questions might not, the answers might not have been as good as, as the next one, but they just came across as the kind well, of person you would make fit a into note. the company. Oh, you'd make a note, okay. You would make a note. You would say this person's more open. They look at me in the eye. I feel that they're not turning their back to me. Um, they're forthright in their answers. Uh, they seem more confident. You'd make all those mm. notes because when you land up at the Labor Court or at the CCMA or at the Equality Court and they say, why did you take Joe Soap? And then you're going to feel very confident to say, I've got all 10 application sheets. I've got my notes from all 10 of them. I'm not relying just on my memory. Here it is. And here I've marked them. Out of 10 for each question or whatever, what I'm trying to say is don't rely on your memory because the onus lies on you. And you're not going to go and tell a lie afterwards and you don't want a commissioner to think you're telling a lie. So you say, here we are. Here's all the information. Here's all the questionnaires. I've put each one in a separate envelope and I've made a decision as to how I'm going to do it. And I think the wise thing then is to keep that for at least six months after you've been through it and do it properly. Again, I go back to the fact that you should be, if you can, if you can afford it, use agencies. They are qualified to do this. They are doing it properly. They're keeping records. They're keeping envelopes. They're keeping proper computer profiles of individuals. And they can then come and justify why they only sent these three people for the final interview as opposed to the other 50 that applied. Because the other 50 have all the rights in the world to challenge it. And in fact, no one can challenge the agency because they weren't planning to employ you in the first place. They're acting as a conduit, but they're the professionals. We're also going to find, and I know we're running out of time, but we're going to find lots of problems with the tests, the psychometric testing that is used. It's got to be a qualified tester. It's got to be a past course. In other words, a course that has got the proper qualification behind it. And it's got to be done independently and uniform. You can't just have some charlatan arriving and saying, I'm going to pretend I'm a psychologist, an industrial psychologist. I found a test that was drawn up by my neighbor, and I'm now going to test people to see whether they... That's not acceptable at all. Our law is now laying down strict controls on all these tests that are done beforehand. Sounds like this whole job market's a bit of a minefield, Michael. It is, but it's a minefield that if played properly can be done. I don't think you and I would go into a cricket match unless we'd read the cricket rules. Pretty much. Pretty much. Okay. Well, it's, well as, as I said, you know, we were going to be talking about jobs and employees and employers, and I hope you've all learned something. I've learned an awful lot. I hope you have as well. So my thanks once again this evening to Labour Law Attorney Michael Bagram, and he's been my guest on tonight's edition of the Law Report Programme. Michael, once again, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, and happy job hunting. Well, yes, and Michael will be back with us again on Monday the 4th of May. Remember, there's a list of available documents on the Facebook page, Law on SAFM. If you'd like any of those, post a message on Facebook. But please do remember to include your email address so I can send them to you, or you can email me on law at safm.co.za. The Law Report is on the air on SAFM every Monday evening between 9 and 10. And if you'd like to contact me, as I said before, it's law at safm.co.za on the email, or Facebook is law on SAFM. Well, I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with a disability report, so join me then. It's time now for some nighttime music.